thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So it is, um, what we're going to be studying tonight is an important part of the book Exodus, not because it is more important in essence than what we have seen so far, but because it is a part of Exodus that we usually do not pay attention to, nor do we understand its significance in the entire work of salvation and in Scripture. This is the part that will deal with the tabernacle, that's specifically chapters 25 and 26. Before we do that, however, we'll cover briefly chapter 24, and then we'll get into the, the, the discussion around the tabernacle, which is very, very, very important, more than what meets the eye. So, tonight, we will be, as I said, dealing with two parts. First, chapter 24, which is really the ratification of the covenant, and then to the tabernacle, and we'll see how much of that we will get covered tonight. We will be spending a number of lectures on the book of Exodus now, talking about the, the, the tabernacle. The first part, the ratification of the covenant, will cover three elements. The, pop, the popular ascent to the covenant, then the table of the Lord, and then Moses going up to the mountain. So the popular ascent, the table of the Lord, and Moses going up to the mountain. And interestingly enough, these three parts mirror structurally, the tabernacle. And we will see that as we go through it. And then, when we get to the tabernacle, we'll cover some general observations, some historical considerations. We'll look at the Genesis connection. Uh, If you're writing those, I'm going to repeat them again. Then we'll look at the heavenly pattern. We'll take a look at the inside of the tabernacle and the material for the tabernacle. Again, there are um, six subsections. The general observations historical considerations, the Genesis connection, the heavenly pattern inside the tabernacle, and material for the tabernacle. It's a very loaded uh, uh, session, and truly today it is a study. We will be delving into a lot of that. I do, again, strongly suggest that you either uh, take notes and review the notes and study the notes, or get the CD. And in this specific instance, I do really recommend you get the CD and listen to it at least three times. It will take that long before these things start, start to settle. And the reason I'm saying this is because this, the tabernacle, is foundational to our faith. It, it truly is. And it is one of the most ignored element in Scripture. 
most people who get to the, these parts of Exodus will go through this, flip, 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 and move on. And don't understand the importance of it. That's why I want to spend time on the tabernacle. So, with that said in mind, let's move on, therefore, to chapter 24. Let's first recapitulate what we've seen so far. God is establishing a covenant with his people. He is establishing a covenant with his people, knowing full well what they are going to do, which is the golden calf. So therefore, because he knows that, he, uh, he is injecting into the covenant the rules and governance they will need to be able to live and recognize their need and dependency towards him. God is not giving them the medicine yet because he knows full well it will be lost on them. It is not a medicine that they will make use of. Reminiscent of what Jesus told us in the gospel not to throw our jewels to the pigs. Meaning not to give those who do not understand the element of faith things they simply cannot understand. Uh, For instance... You will not talk to someone about consecration to Mary when someone doesn't even understand the role of Mary. You will not talk to someone about reception of the Eucharist when someone doesn't understand the church and the sacraments. And you don't talk to someone about the church and the sacraments if he has not yet had an encounter with God or believes in him. And on and on it goes. You only give someone what he can actually take. That's the something very natural to us and make complete sense. We use it all the time and we do not expect anything else. In fact, anything else would be absurd. It would make no sense, right? And God is doing the same thing. Again, I stress this point. Exodus, the the whole Pentateuch, is not about God trying to give his people sublime truths about heaven. We're not there. It is about God walking with his people when they are in need of someone to walk with them, hold their hands, take care of them, and lead them forward until such time they become able to receive his grace. If you keep that in mind, and if you move away from the notion that God is revealing sublime truths, Number one, you will cease to be surprised or confused. Number two, you'll have the right perspective to understand what God is doing. He's speaking a language they can understand. Therefore, God has heavy reliance. He relies very heavily on the understanding and culture that the Jews have and they have accumulated from their stay in Egypt. They understand religion based on what they have seen in Egypt. They understand um, celebration based on the way it was done in Egypt. So much of their understanding is conditioned by their culture. And God will use all these elements to make them understand who He is and what He wants from them. This is not to say that this would have been God's preferred way of doing it. It is simply something that is simply an indication of God's realistic approach 
and pedagogy towards people who have been thoroughly lost. And so it is today with us. And we'll get to that as we go through all of this. So the covenant has been instituted. God gave them laws. He gave them uh, the laws He wanted them to follow. And as a result of this, there is a ratification that happens. The ratification of the covenant as indicated in chapter 24. And in that chapter, as I said earlier, there are three parts. There's a popular ascent, then there is a meal, then there is Moses ascending to the mountain. Now, there is an elaborate rite of ratification that takes place. This rite is not unique to Exodus. This is a rite that would have been familiar to the Israelites. It is a rite that is familiar to all of the Near East. A ratification of the covenant would be an occasion of celebration. And it always consists of a sacrifice, when a deity is involved, and a meal. But also a sealing of the covenant. The covenant had to be sealed. And that's what we're going to see here. In verses 1 through 11, we hear the popular ascent. The people, the Israelites, are ascending to the covenant, and they do it verbally. So, let's go through this um, a little closer. And then I'll come back to a couple of interesting um, considerations over the whole section. God said to Moses, verse 1, in fact, in the Hebrew, it is, and to Moses, he said, emphasizing that this particular instruction that he's giving him right now pertains to Moses only and not to everyone. This is important to us because it starts to establish the hierarchy. The hierarchy in God's eyes is important because it reflects a truth about heaven. And heaven is hierarchical. Heaven is not flat. There is a hierarchy in heaven, and God wants us to understand that because it spurs us onto holiness with the right mindset. As long as people think that heaven is flat and all that is required is for you to get to heaven and it ends there, your desire to acquire heaven or reach heaven will not be as great as if you understood there are actually degrees and glory in heaven. And so that is something God wishes to make clear to us. And in a specific instance, he has singled out Moses and he calls Moses out, not, ev- up, not, everybody, up, not everybody else. However, he, so God asks Moses to come up with him, and he asks to take with him Nadab and Abidu, Abihu. And these are actually the sons of Aaron. The fact that they're introduced without any descriptive identity is an indication that the readers or the hearers of the Pentateuch are supposed to know who they are from the genealogy that was given in Exodus chapter 6.23, where their names are listed. So obviously for us who do not have these genealogies in mind, we get lost. But that's where they are listed. The interesting thing is that even though they are to approach God, these two will perish. God will kill them because they will be performing some sinful ritual act, which was never disclosed. And... um, and that, so that's kind of really interesting and a constant reminder and warning to everyone. It isn't enough to approach God's holy mountain once. You have to approach it with the right mind, but it is always possible to fall away later. There is no such thing as I go and I proclaim that I am Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and therefore I am saved, and that's it. No, nothing is assured until the last breath we take. Either way, 
There is no assured damnation and there is no assured salvation as far as we're concerned until the very moment of death, until the last breath we take. And can go either way. A lot depends on us. A lot depends on our training. And I, I think I had mentioned that to you since I'm on that subject before, that on the moment of death, when we are about to die and our senses are failing, this is when the, the devil will mount his strongest attack against us. This is when he will try to overwhelm us one way or the other, to confuse us, to get us to renege our, our, our belief in God. And um, uh, for instance, there, are, there is a, an author who wrote a book uh, about, um, it's called Something Something and, uh, and um, Something Something and Crowded Rooms. So if you Google an author, a title of a book called Something, not Something, Something, just Crowded Rooms, that book will pop up. What he did, he went around the nation and interviewed people who were sitting with uh, folks who were dying or who went through a near-death experience. And many of them reported that the experience they went through was actually a very quiet and peaceful one where they saw loved ones appear to them and be ready to actually guide them to that place of light. And in some cases, there were so many of them, their hospital room was crowded with them. That's why the title had Crowded Rooms, where so many of them were there. And I always thought, prior to hearing this author, that the way the devil will attack us will always be by way of fear. But in fact, this is a far better and much more cunning attack. Because if you have in your heart a love of a of um, the love for um, a mother or a father or a brother, someone who disappeared, who left you, tra- who died in, in some circumstance, and you're still attached to this person, and they appear to you at your moment of death, how will you react? Will your emotions take over the fundamental truth that God revealed to us in which he stated that the dead will not speak to the living? And you would know, therefore, that this is a lie? that you can reject, or will you just go along? Hence, rejecting all that you lived for, your faith, all your prayers, at the very last moment of your life. You see how cunning this is? So, if you're not now preparing yourself by living in holy detachment, by loving your children and your husband and everyone else in Christ, not for you, but for Him, how will you be able to exercise this detachment when it is required of you at the moment of your death? How will you be able to evade this kind of deadly trap? When you're weak, when you're emotionally needy, when you're possibly afraid, and when you're in agony. Do you understand? Most of us live right now not thinking that our our life is a preparation for that one moment, for that singular moment in our life when we're going to face death. And choices are made. And in one split second, we can lose everything. So if you're wise, if you are truly wise, what do you do? You do not rely upon yourself, nor upon your strength. You rely upon the strength of someone who who is dependable, who cannot be tricked, who will not waver, who will protect you, who will be next to you. You will make friends. And you will want to make sure that these friends are going to be present at the moment of your death. 
Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now. Why do we pray this prayer? If you're just praying it, not thinking about what I just described to you, you are misunderstanding the intent. This is not a pious prayer. This is a cry of war. You're calling upon a very strong ally to be there and to defend you so that these attacks may not come over because they can overcome you. We're not that strong. We're not that strong. We have to realize our weaknesses. We are not strong. We are burdened by so many trials in life that at a moment of death, we may be like little children crying for help. And we see the face of a mother or a father whom we love that appeared to us and they're smiling and they want to take us to a place of happiness. We'll gladly go. Do you understand? Yeah. So, that is really key that your life is actually a preparation for your moment of death. And as you understand that, you begin to understand that you have to anchor your life in truth. And the only way you anchor your life in truth is by habitual, habitual prayer that makes that truth part of your life in practice. So that you don't have to rely on memory. It is habit. In the end, it is habit that will that will save you, and it, will, it is habit that will damn you. So, God calls Moses up, and he, he brings with him 70 of the elders. And these are bowing low, and they see God from afar. And that phrase might be construed to mean that they are to keep their distance, but it also might be construed to mean that they are bowing low from afar, as was the custom in the ancient Near East, where when you see the king, you start to bow when you're still far away. And we see that, for instance, in Jacob. Jacob did that when he saw Esau. He was bowing from afar. In any event, they are to go up on the mountain, but Moses alone is to actually go up all the way to the top of the mountain. Therefore, the mountain itself is divided into three zones. The, the foot of the mountain is where the people are. The midsection is where the 70 elders and Aaron are going to go. This replies the priest, this re, uh, uh, represents the priestly section. And then the top of the mountain is where only Moses go. Right? This re- represents really the, the, the height of holiness. And only Moses is called to go there. The priests are to stay at the midsection. Okay? This is exactly how the tabernacle will be structured. This is exactly how our church in in their architecture, ought to be structured. This, where we are right now, the center part of the church, is the base of the mountain. The sanctuary is that midsection where normally only the priest should go during celebration liturgy. And then the tabernacle is the Holy of Holy where only God reigns. Unfortunately, we've lost all of that due to the way we treat architecture these days. And so you can see people going up and down the sanctuary as if it is just another part of the church. And this is all to our detriment. Because we cannot understand Christ. We cannot understand salvation. We cannot understand the church. We cannot understand what we are, how we are supposed to approach God when all that information is lost. We assume that we can approach God whichever way we want. We assume that God hears all prayers. We assume that God will accept 
any prayer, under any condition, said in any way, anywhere. But Scripture never said that is the case. Nowhere does Scripture say God is that approachable. If anything, Scripture says the exact opposite. God is unapproachable light. Earlier on in Exodus, we saw um, the Lord telling Moses, take off your shoes, for this ground is holy. We have no problem coming into the church with flip-flops or running shoes. We have no problem sitting and crossing our legs in church. We think we're sitting with equals. We have no problem coming into the church and um, uh, essentially defining how we are going to worship. And you've heard me harp on this so many times, and it's so important because it really makes us believe it is okay to worship you know, however we feel like it. We feel, again, the feelings. So in all Eastern liturgies, you're not supposed to kneel. And when the Mass is celebrated here, a lot of people are kneeling. Plenty are kneeling. Because they feel like it. They think that their expression of devotion to God is better expressed if they're kneeling. Because of their education. In the Latin rite, you're not supposed to hold hands. You're not supposed to open your arms when you say the Our Father. You're not supposed to do any of this. People do it because they feel, again, that their expression of worship is greater this way. So therefore, the fundamental error there are, um, they are committing is to think that worship is defined, is on our own terms. We define how we worship. Whereas, as you see in the tabernacle, God leaves nothing to man. He instructs Moses very specifically on how the tabernacle is going to be constructed down to the minutest details to give them a very clear understanding that He is the one who defines worship. He is the one who defines liturgy. He is the one who who tells us how we ought to approach Him how He expects us to approach Him. He's defining the protocol of the way we worship. He's telling us what pleases Him in our worship. We obey and do as He says. Not do according to how we feel. So, that is the fundamental aspect of the tabernacle that we've completely lost. In connection with that, we somehow think that the central point of, the, of Exodus is what? What do you think people, if they were to say, what is the most important element of the whole book of Exodus? The Ten Commandments. That is a very Protestant view. Why? Because it's the book alone. They divorce the Ten Commandments from the tabernacle. When God, in fact, gave both together. They divorce the word from the liturgy. Where, in fact, the word was given for the liturgy. They divorce divorce theology from morality. Whereas, in fact, morality, the commandments, cannot be attained unless we worship God properly. In spirit and in truth, as Jesus will say later. The two are organically connected. The two form one unity in God's minds. He is not only telling them how they're going to live, 
the Ten Commandments, he's also telling them what's it going to take for them to live this way. The tabernacle and the liturgy surrounding it. And what did they do? What did the Jews do? What did the Israelites do specifically? Pardon? No, no, I mean, very concretely. I don't want um, principles. Concretely, what was the action they took while Moses was up on the mountain receiving the liturgy and the Ten Commandments and the tabernacle? Golden calf. What is the golden calf? Pardon? Yeah, yeah, but what is it? What is it? Yes, and what happens around it? When you create, you, 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 when they've made the golden calf, what did they do next? Before the party? It's a liturgy. It's a complete deforma- deformation of the liturgy. You understand? When man becomes rebellious before God, the first thing that man does is deform and transform the liturgy to suit one's need. That's why you hear me being so um, insistent on the proper respect and obedience to the liturgy as it comes to us from the church and not changing one yoda in it. That's why you see me um, concerned when Catholics don't understand the role, the proper role of the sanctuary. They don't understand that in church you're not supposed to talk, not even to say hello to your neighbor. That's a venial sin. Go talk outside. This is a holy, sacred place. God is present. Only words related to the liturgy, to prayer, to God's presence must be uttered here. We've completely lost the notion of the sacred, of the power of the liturgy. We don't have it anymore. It's a tragedy that, is, uh, has, that has unspeakable consequences on our entire civilization. I'll tell you right now, there is no way you're going to be able, we are going to be able to fix this nation or any other nation until we come back to the proper worship of God according to the liturgy. There is no way. It cannot happen. It will not happen. This has, and there's a fundamental reason why, because if God were to allow us to fix the world while messing the liturgy, what would that be? Would that be, let's say God allow us, allows us to fix the economy and fix um, the climate issues and fix wars and bring peace out there while the, the liturgy is messed up. What would that be? No, no, no. What would that be? God is not, can't fall into hypocrisy. But you're, 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 you're getting closer to what I'm trying to convey. Would that be a mis- God mislead? No, no, it's not the devil. If God were, if God, God forbid, were, were to allow this to happen, what would that be? That would be His wrath. That would be His wrath. Why? Because this is, this is the doorway to heaven. Heaven cannot exist apart from truth. We worship in truth and spirit. Truth. Truth about God and truth about us. The liturgy as given by God is a gift of mercy to teach us about who He is, who we are, and how we approach Him the way He wishes to be approached. When the liturgy 
is deformed, what has happened? The image of God is deformed. We have a deformed image of who we are. And we can't communicate with God appropriately. Therefore, the way to heaven is shut. Do you understand that? You realize that none of us, none of us, none of us, none of us can go to heaven without the Mass? If there was no Mass celebrated, there is no access to heaven. Without the Mass, there is no access to heaven. That's the way you get to heaven. That's the way your prayers, your rosaries, your sacrifices, your work, your good works, that's the, pray, that's the way your hopes, all the good things that you have come to you through the liturgy. There is no other way. Do you see why it's so important? You see why it calls the, 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 the Catholic Church calls Mass the source and summit, the source and summit, mountain, summit, of our faith? That's why. This has supreme importance for our lives and for our salvation. That is really, you want to grow in faith, study the liturgy. Study the liturgy. Try to understand why these elements are there. Deepen your love for the church and the liturgy. Because truly, it is the way to heaven. And that's why uh, there are about 50 chapters, 50 chapters, 5-0, 50 chapters that talk about the tabernacle. And we can't even think of it as being important in Exodus. We only think of the commandments. This is how much we have had our understanding of our faith deformed by the Protestant heresy. The thinking that all that counts is the word. Now, if I go back to, the, to uh, chapter 24 for, quite, uh, for a minute, I wanted to signal a couple of really important elements here. So, God basically tells us, you're going to come up. And in verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord had, has spoken, we will do. They have committed themselves to doing what God said. This is part of the covenant. Now, after that, Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar, and set up twelve pillars, according to the twelve pillars of Israel. And then there was a sacrifice, where blood then is sprinkled. Moses took the blood and threw it upon the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Right? So they are then sprinkled with the blood of the covenant. Now, I want to, uh, I want to observe here that this structure has been kept intact in the church. We use this structure today. It has not changed. The elements have changed, but the fundamental structure is the same. When you go through a rite of baptism, what happens first? The priest asks the parents, what do you wish for your child? And what do the parents say? Pardon? Baptism. What, does, what do they mean by saying baptism? They mean incorporation in the life of the church. Therefore, they mean incorporation in the covenantal life that Jesus Christ established. Then, the priest, before baptizing the child, 
asks the parents. You notice he doesn't say, recite for me the Acts of the Apostles. Right? Why does he do that? Because of this. Do you reject Satan? We do. Do you believe? We do. Verbal assertion. And then after that, what happens? Sprinkling with water. For the child on behalf of the same structure, therefore the same responsibility, therefore the same blessings and the same curses apply. God shall not be mocked. Again, we've lost all of this. We've lost all of this. So fundamentally, parents who bring their child to be baptized, what should they be thinking? And I, I want to bring to your attention why what the Jews, have, uh, the Israelites did right there, we do all the time. If you realize what you're committing to do, what should be foremost on your mind if you're taking baptism seriously? What should be foremost on your mind? Taking children to Mass. Okay, that, that's good. But there's something else that should be foremost on your mind. We can't do this thing. We're committing ourselves to something that is utterly impossible to do on our own strength. How are we committing to actually have this child baptized and raise him in the faith and make him a saint? That's what we're committing to do. Making him a saint as in getting him into heaven, right? Because when you commit and you say, we do, you're basically saying to God, I am now committed to bringing this kid to heaven. That's what it means. That's what it means. If you really think about it, can you bring somebody to heaven? Can you? So how are you committing to do that? Ah, with God's grace. But what does that presuppose? It presupposes humility. It presupposes knowledge of self. It presupposes knowledge of your own weaknesses and sinfulness and wretchedness, and all the horrible things you can commit. It presupposes you don't show up and stand there thinking of yourselves as being consecrated saints. But at wretched sinners who require all the help they can ask for. If you are then approaching God with what Scripture says, a contrite heart, God will bless you abundantly because you're standing in front of Him and worshiping Him in truth. Do you understand? So we do what they, what they did. They stood there and they said, everything God said we will do. And fast forward a couple of days later, what happened? The golden calf. How is that possible? Well, this is how it's possible. Catholics do it all the time. Well, we haven't baptized the kid because we're just waiting for the, we're waiting for the godparents to show up. The kid is six months. He's not baptized. We're just waiting. The church recommends two weeks or four weeks at most before you baptize the kid. But never mind what the church recommends. We know better. We have to wait so we can have a big party. The golden calf. No different. We have the same mentality. Do you understand? That is why this is so important to us because when we read it, it was written for instruction. We see ourselves and therefore we can then realize, wait a minute, we do what they do. How did God treat them? Oh, this is how I treated them. What are we supposed to do? 
Well, he gave them the liturgy. Oh, well, that's the way we are supposed to conform and behave ourselves so that God may have mercy on us and give us what we need. The graces that will make us truly saints. That's what scripture is all about. Yeah? Everything God said, we will do. Then Moses signed the covenant. The covenant is sealed now. It means that God's honor, God's glory, God's name are fully engaged. When you baptize your kid, God's honor, God's glory, God's name are fully engaged. You baptize your child, you go out, you never catechize him, you never pray at home, you never talk about uh, scripture, you never read scripture to him, you never do, I'm talking mostly to the fathers here, you don't know any of those things, you're mocking God's name. And what do you expect is going to happen after so many years of you mocking God's name? God is merciful, God is patient, God will give you many warnings, many signs, God will show you so many will give you so many chances for you to reform. But if you don't, what do you think is going to happen? How do you think God comes after you? He takes from you the one thing you neglected, your kids. Then you have these parents complaining that their children are rebellious, they don't listen, they're doing whatever, here and there and the other. What, what do you expect? You mocked God, you neglected God, you didn't even consider Him seriously. You thought, all I have to do is give them to the priest, the priest will do what he has to do, and I'm done. You washed your hands from your commitment that you took at baptism, and you expect what exactly? To have saints? You know, the truth of the matter, really, at the end of the day, if we analyze it, it isn't that we didn't have good priests, and it isn't that the church has gone through a whole cycle of confusion, even though these are possibly true statements, that the priest may not have the right formation or may not be able to convey the truth the way they ought to, maybe. The truth of the matter is, all along, we knew what we were doing. All along, we made our choices. And our choices were Egypt. Our choices were Apis. And no, I do not mean it in the, you know, in the extreme ways. I don't mean we were partying and we got into drugs and we were drunk, although some may have done that. No, I mean the more deadly trap of people who confine their lives to one of comfort and appropriate material possessions. The proper life. Send our kids to school, give them a high education, live a proper life, pay our taxes, be good citizens. That is the deadly trap we all fell into. By choice. Not to say that any of the things are bad in and themselves, they're not. Precisely the problem. But we've never sat down and considered seriously, what is God expecting me to do? Really? And how do I find that out? We never exercise the same qualities we exercise in our normal life for business, for taxes, for cars. When we want to buy a car, we become very shrewd, or at least we try to. We do our research, we study the thing, we look into it, we look at all the features. We talk to a lot of people before we, we want to make an informed decision. 
which is great. But when it comes to God and the liturgy and the Mass, there is no informed decision to be made, is there now? I'm not saying this, saying this to discourage you. I'm just painting a very simple and I believe realistic picture about where we most, most often than not stand in relationship to God. That if we understand that, we can come to Him in truth and say, Jesus, look, this is who I am. That's my problem. I'm not good at prayer. I'm not good at Mass. I get bored. I don't understand why I'm doing this. But you know what? I really want to, I really want to be with you in heaven. What should I do? I mean, if we just approach them with that simple prayer, from the heart, we mean it, and we really want to commit to improving this, He'll change the world for us. But it takes a realization of where we are where He is. As long as we think Mass is free for all, it's easy, we can go there, dress any way we want, sit any way we want, pray any way we want, there's no effort required, there's nothing, and God loves us, and God gives us everything we ask for. Why would we ever ask this question? Yeah? So they went through this process. And the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the table of stones with the law and the commandments, which I have written for their instruction. So, for their instruction. Instruction in what? Yeah. For their instruction to live morally. This is the moral part. So when Moses goes up to the mountain, what is the very first thing that God starts talking to him about? The tabernacle. And he doesn't tell him. He just starts start telling him, this is how what you're going to do. You're going to build a tabernacle. This is what I'm going to build. And all the details. He told him, let me repeat that. Come up to me on the mountain and wait there. So he's going to make him wait six days in prayer, in preparation. On the seventh day, he reveals all this to him. But six days, he's going to wait. Why do you think he makes him wait six days? It's a possible possibility there is an analogy, but not quite so, even though it's six, because in the case of earth, he was doing things in six days, right? There was no waiting. But we will come back to that. You will see there is a very strong analogy between the two. But that, here, not quite so. Yes. That's a beautiful lesson that you can derive from that. I don't think this is the primary reason, but absolutely. The week is a preparation for Mass, and the week is in Thanksgiving for Mass, right? This is one of the hardest things for Catholics to wire Mass with the rest of the week. Right? And be careful not to break them and separate them. And live with this sort of dichotomy. Here's Mass on Sunday for a couple of hours. And now let me forget all about Mass and just go live my, my worldly life. Right? So, yeah. But not primary. Where do we see a wait like this? Who waited like that. Abraham, when? Yeah, for the, but not, yeah, Abraham, but not exactly. Somebody else waited before beginning his work. Jesus. Matthew is very clear, right? He comes, he's baptized, ducks, and then, bam, the Spirit took him to the desert where he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And after that, he came and began, repent, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. So what is that for? These six days are for whom? Who are these six days for? No? Moses. Exactly. Moses. 
God is sanctifying Moses in those six days. He knows what kind of heavy weight he's going to put on his shoulders. So he sanctifies him in that time of preparation, in that time of prayer, that where he works on his soul and prepares him to be able to carry the mission. And that is another part of our lives that we completely miss. The contemplative side. That we don't engage in contemplative prayer as much as we ought. We engage a lot in um, prayer of petition, but not in contemplative prayer. Where we can just sit down and wait. Just wait. So we read the Gospels. We'll read the life of a saint, the writings of a saint. We'll read, um, so for instance, you can read uh, Introduction to the Devout Life, great book. Uh, the Interior Castle, St. Teresa of Avila, great book. The Dark Night of the Soul by St. John. Another one, Imitation of Christ, another really good book. You can read uh, Spiritual Combat, very good book. Uh, so many of these spiritual books written for the purpose of engaging us in waiting. And then you set all that aside, you turn off the light and you sit and reflect, meditate quietly in what you've read. You're just waiting on God to take the initiative in that moment of prayer to engage you and give you the strength to do what He calls you to do the following day. Where you finally unburden yourself, you lay everything at the foot of Jesus and you Wait for Him. And if you fall asleep, fall asleep. Don't worry about it. God will work on your soul whether you're awake or asleep. You've given Him that time. Let Him deal with it. It might take you quite some time to stop falling asleep. That's okay. Just be faithful. That is your time to be strengthened. That is your time to be transformed. That is your time where God can work on you because finally you stop behaving like an ADHD kid being all over the place and you're sitting in one spot, you're doing nothing, you're not playing a game, you're not listening to music, you're not talking, you're not texting, you're not on the phone, you're not on a computer, you're not working, you're not, you're not busy, you're not doing anything, you are actually sitting like Mary sat at the foot of Jesus and Jesus said, Mary has the better portion and it will not be taken away from her. And he told Martha, one thing only is needed. One, not the best, not the first. One, one. This is the only thing needed. And this is the thing we neglect. No surprising because we don't understand the liturgy and the ramification of the liturgy and what God wants to do. And how could we then understand the importance of these moments of prayer where we sit before the Lord and we wait like Moses did. Six days. Moses waited six days. We can't even do it for 15 minutes. I challenge you, especially you young men, if you want to find out who you, what, you, what you're made of, what metal are you made of, you really want to know what, you're, what you are, do this. Try that out for 60 days. You'll learn more about yourself than about anything else you do. Read a part of scripture, like five, six lines. Pick up the Gospels. Start with the Gospels. Read five, six lines. And if you have the um, Navarre Bible, it's perfect because it will give you the Gospel and some um, meditation about the Gospel. Read those until you, something hits you. Some thought that speaks really to you. 
and stop right there, turn off the light, put your timer on, and sit in the dark for 15 minutes. And then see what happens to you. 15 minutes. If I told you to do it for three hours, you might hang me. You think it's impossible to do it for three hours. This is in the, it's a material impossibility. It's the end of the universe. It's the defiance of all natural laws. It's breaking the laws of physics for us to sit quietly for three hours. This is impossible. Six days. Six days. 24-7. Six days, Moses waited. No mass. No communion. No sacraments. No nothing. Six days. Can't, we can't even do an hour. And if we did an hour, we'd canonize ourselves on the spot. We're saints. If we did three hours, move over St. Francis. So, he waited three hours. And then, and then the Lord said, come up to the mountain and wait there. He waited, and I will give you the tables. So he did that. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. And now the appearance of the glory of the Lord, when he appeared on the seventh day, was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. 40 days and 40 nights while God was instructing him. There's a six days period waiting for him. 40 days and 40 nights is God's instruction to him so he can come down and lead his people. And already God knows the golden calf is coming. So that's going to be baked into that instruction. So this is essentially this closing of the covenant where the people commit to do what the Lord told them to do. The seal of the covenant takes place. They are sealed in the covenant. And then Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders, 70 being, as you know, the totality, 7 times 10, 7 the number of the covenants, 10 is completion. So it's the totality of Israel which is represented at that meal. They eat a meal, they see God, they're given a vision of God. They saw God, golden calf. Aaron was with them. He saw this, golden calf. Could you explain that to me? You see how naive our thought process is? We think if we see Our Lady or the angels or St. Joseph or Jesus, then we're a saint. We won't commit any sins. We're just a saint. No, nope. doesn't work that way. Having a vision never made a saint of anybody. It's your internal disposition. It is your virtues. It is your moral standing, whether you have a vision or not, that makes you a saint. Not a vision. But we think if somebody has a vision, he's a saint. And if somebody doesn't have a vision, well, he's just a nobody. God doesn't work that way. Thank, thanks. thanks be to God. He doesn't work that way at all. Aaron is the one who was there. He sat and ate before the Lord. He had a vision of God. Go back and read chapter 24. And then golden calf. How is that possible? You see, St. Augustine, Lord, let me know myself that I may know Thee. We are blindsided to our weaknesses. That's why. You know, God is not, God is humble. God does not impose Himself on us. So when He gives us a vision of Him, it does not mean that He is going to forcefully change us. 
We have to respond to this. But if we do not know ourselves, how could we? Yeah? The vision is wondrous, but if we're not ready to receive it, it's like water splashing on, on flintstone. It does nothing. Because God is not going to impose himself on us. Yeah? That's why. So people think, if, especially when they have dreams, they have a dream, it's a wonderful dream, it's a, they're, they're, you know, they immediately conclude right away it's from God. Right? Because we're all popes on that moment when we have dreams. Somehow dreams turn us all into in, in, infallible popes. We know it's from God right away. And let no one dare tell us otherwise. And then we think, therefore, that because we had that dream, God spoke to us that we're special. More special than when he doesn't visit us with a dream or talk to us. As far as I can tell, apart from the visitation of Gabriel to Our Lady, she never had a dream. And while Jesus was living under her roof, he acted like a man. See, it's the predisposition we have. And again, it's tied with the liturgy. It's unfortunate that we live in this time where there's so much confusion because liturgy is supposed to form us from when we're little in truly understanding who God is, who we are, and a relationship to Him. That, that is one of the key roles that the liturgy plays for all of us, and we've missed that. So it's really hard for us to recover it, but yet we must try. We must try. This is going to be very important. That's why these chapters in the tabernacle are so important. And that's why I'm taking my time to go through them, because they are foundational to our faith. So Moses is going to be on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Okay, in the time that is left, I want to uh, give you a brief overview of what the tabernacle is like. I'm not be able to do what I said I'm going to do, um, but that's not, nothing surprising. Um, it's a complicated and difficult topic for for all of us to go through. So please take a copy of uh, uh, this, these images that I have uh, collected for you, just to give you a, a visual understanding of what the tabernacle looked like so that we can start to dive into this. And I would recommend that before the next section, you go back and reread chapter 25 and 26, then read 27, 28. We'll see how much we get covered next week of these chapters, but fundamentally the remainder part of, of uh, the, the lectures on Exodus really is going to be dealing with the tabernacle. So hopefully by the end of that section, you, I might have whetted your appetite for you to learn more about the church, the architecture, the symbols, the things we use, their meaning, why they're there, and for you then to uh, run with this, read some of the documents about the constitution of the church and uh, the second Vatican uh, document on the constitution of the church, read and understand the architecture, the meaning of it, w- read about your own uh, liturgy, why is it structured the way it is, and uh, hopefully this will help you to deepen your devotion and love for the church and for the, for the liturgy. What you have here are four pages that are dealing with the tabernacle. So the first top page, as you can see, is a cover from a book called The Tabernacle, Shadows of the Messiah. And um, it's a um, small little book that is actually pretty useful. 
so you might want to get your own copy uh, if you are interested. But really, what I'm trying to do here is show you visually what it would have looked like for Israel in the wilderness to have this tabernacle built, uh, built in the way it is. So you can see, first of all, that there is an outer court surrounding the tabernacle with one door. The tabernacle would have been oriented east to west. The entrance to the east, the holy, is the, the tent actually is in the west side. You can see that there are tents surrounding the tabernacle, and Israel, therefore, would be concentrically located across the tent. This is the initial intent that God had, that he will be in the midst of his people. He would be in the midst of his people. But after the golden calf, what is going to happen? The tabernacle, God effectively is going to excommunicate himself. Or put it, out, put it differently, he excommunicates all of Israel. Because the tabernacle will be built outside the camp. Completely separately from everybody else. The, um, the second page gives you a cutaway view of what would this look like. With some measurements to help you get an understanding of the dimensions of this. So this was obviously a movable te- a temple. The whole tabernacle was a movable temple that they would move with them. And the entire instruction and the architecture, what you see here, is given by God. Nothing is left to human consideration. They had to execute specifically what God wanted them to do and how they had to do it. You can see that, as I said earlier, it's oriented east to west. Which is why, in many cases, the churches tend or were oriented East to west, because of the tabernacle. Okay. The dimensions are about um, 50 feet in width, and uh, I'm sorry, 75 feet in width, and 150 feet in length. That's the size of this temple. And you can see that there are really actually two parts to it. There is the outer part, where you can see the bronze altar. That altar was the altar of sacrifice. That's where all the uh, animal sacrifice were burnt, on that altar. Outside the tent. That's key. Outside the tent. Why? Because all these sacrifices, all these animal sacrifices, do not have the power to save. Right? Our sacrifice in Mass is where? Inside the tent. Yeah? That's very important. This is where you start to understand visually, physically, the difference between the, the old covenant and the new. Where are we sitting right now? We are inside the tent. Imagine that. We're inside. Now, the laver, why, what, 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 notice the laver, what is that for? What was that for? There were for ablutions before you enter into the actual sanctuary, before you enter into the tent. Indicative of what? Of the baptismal fount. The baptismal fount should be outside the church. Baptisms should happen outside the church. Why? Yes. 
See how we don't understand these things? We want the baptism to be really close to the altar inside because we feel it's better. We are driven by feelings, not by theological and liturgical considerations. We drive how we worship, which is awful. Because it doesn't get us where we're supposed to go. Yeah? This is why the baptismal fount should be outside in the vestibule. Why? Because this whole court would be represented now in a church by a vestibule. That area that separates the whole camp from the actual tabernacle. So there ought to be a vestibule in a church. Where do you think the priestly vestments should be? Outside. In the vestibule, not inside. You understand? Should a priest go outside of the vestibule with his priestly vestment when he's not performing a religious function? No, No, he shouldn't. You see how we dilute all these fundamental truths about our, our worship when we just don't understand any of this? We never even think about it. We don't even consider the architecture of the church. We just walk in and out and, you know, you see, this is, this is not Moses. Moses didn't decide this. God, the second person of the most holy trinity, told him how he wanted this structured. The liturgy and the church, the architecture, are God-given. We don't tamper with them. Inside the tent proper, there are two sections. It's maybe hard to see, but towards the end you see there's this curtain... Can you see the curtain towards the back? Yes? That is the curtain that St. Matthew spoke of when he said the curtain was tore from top to bottom. And the reason why he said from top to bottom was to indicate that no human hands were at work. Because in the temple, what you see here is the small replica of the temple of Jerusalem. The same structure exists in the temple. And in the temple, that same curtain existed. It was 30 feet wide. And I think 30 feet high. It took 10 men to raise that curtain and put it in place. So, the problem is that when we hear curtain, what are we thinking of? When we hear St. Matthew saying the curtain was torn from top, top to bottom, what are, we, what are we thinking of? Maybe, you know, a curtain, like a small little thingy. Well, this was not small. Right? So, that section, the tent itself, is now divided into two parts. Right? The front part is called, this whole thing is called the holy place. Right? This is, so, the outer thing is called the outer court. This is called the holy place. And then behind that is called the holy of holies. Right? So, you see the three sections. We still ought to have the three sections in our churches. Represented somewhat differently. This here would be the holy place. This up here would be the holy of holy. And the tabernacle is actually heaven. God indwelling presence. That's the difference. That's why we call the church heaven on earth. That's the fundamental difference between this and the This is symbolic. This is symbolic. This is real. That's the difference. In it, there are two things inside this thing. And we'll talk about those objects in more detail. But there is the actual 
the table of called the table for the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence. This is how it was called, the shoe bread, the bread of the presence. And God required that bread be put on this table at all time. Why do you think he did that? Yes. We call the Eucharist, what do we call the Eucharist? The true presence. What do you think we got the word presence from? Somebody came up with it randomly? Right from here. He's already preparing them to understand through all the ceremonials going to give them, the bloody ceremonial of sacrificing all these animals, which is a bloody business, that doesn't save them, that the real thing is coming. So when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, if you don't have this in your mind, you understand what he's talking about. You might think about, you know, mommy's bread or grandma's bread. You might have an, a homey image of the bread. That's not at all what he has in mind. He's got this in mind. The bread of the presence. When he said, I am the bread of life. He means, that bread on the table, that's me. Then you have the candelabrum on the other side. Seven branches. Why? The covenant. What did Jesus say? I am the light of the world. Again, what was he thinking of? The sun? No. That menorah. That is a symbol of Jesus Christ. Afterwards, the seven churches, he uses it again in the, um, in the book of Revelation. And we'll see that when he says, I'll come and take out your light or your lamp or your candle. This, this, that's why in the Latin rite you see the paschal. Like that is the candelabrum. It is symbolizing the presence of Jesus. Okay? And then behind the curtain, what you had, you had the actual ark. Containing the manna, containing the rod of Aaron that had budded, and containing the Ten Commandments. Three symbols of the Lord. The Eucharist, the priest, and the Word of God. You see how it is a, it's a symbiotic unity you can't take Scripture outside of the church. Scripture, on its own, is like a light bulb that doesn't give light. Scripture, on its own, is like a light bulb that does not give light. You've got to take that light bulb and put it in its socket, which is the pulpit. And when you put it on the pulpit, it gives light. Because the light of Scripture comes from the Mass. Scripture was made for the Mass. That's the moral, theological, and liturgical truth. All of them contained, connected together in a symbiotic whole. That's why the book of Exodus is so important for us. Because it is fundamentally a recreation. It is the Garden of Eden brought back to us once more. We are right now in the Garden of Eden. This is what the Garden is supposed to be. The tree of life is behind us. The tree of true and knowledge is to my right. It's scripture. It's all now given us. There, are, there is no restriction. The restriction he gave Adam and Eve are lifted in the church. Alright. Next week I'll walk you through these two other papers. But, uh, the two other pages. But you're actually um, definitely invited to look at them. The, you get another cutaway from the top. 
that shows you where the things are. Familiarize yourself with these. The more you familiarize yourself with these, the easier it will be for you to follow these lectures. And the last one, the last page, is actually an indication that shows you the order in which God speaks about all these objects throughout Scripture. Um, there are um, about 15 different sections in uh, Scripture that talk about these pieces, and you see the order that is followed, that God is going to follow, where he talks about all of those. So, in, 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 um, by way of summary, the covenant that God has given his people is not to be considered apart from the tabernacle. They go hand in hand. The laws, the Ten Commandments, cannot be taken away from either the covenant or the tabernacle. All three of those things are interconnected and they form the plan of salvation that God had in mind for His people, foreshadowing what He wanted to do later with His coming. The reason we're studying all of this is because it gives us the foundation to understand what Jesus was talking about, what St. Paul is talking about in his letters, what was the mindset they had, and it will help us understand the role that the liturgy plays and the way we ought to approach God. That it is not a free-for-all, but God expects certain things from us. And we, if we truly love Him, ought to do what He asks us to do so that we can truly show him that we are his sons and daughters because we obey him. Make sense? All right, so let us um, finish with a word of prayer and then we'll take some questions. Yes, is there a reason we replace the menorah with the light fixture? I don't know what the history behind it is, but they both symbolize the same thing. Yes. So, uh, don't know, but that would be a really good question to investigate what, what happened. How come we dropped the seven and we got only one? Maybe it's just a question of practice. I don't know, but it'd be interesting to find out. Yes. How come the priest allows baptism in the church when it's supposed to be outside? Baptism in the church is not, um, it, it doesn't invalidate baptism. You can still do it in the church and it will be a valid uh, sacrament. What I'm talking to you about is something that helps us understand the basics of our faith. It's really at the pedagogical level where we get really messed up. So it ought not be done in the church because it doesn't help us understand the truth of our faiths. It, it messes things up for us. But fundamentally, the, the baptism is valid. Yeah, That would be the intent, is to have across it, but in the precinct of the church. Yes. Because then it conveys the notion, those who are not baptized are not invited into the garden. This is reserved for those who are baptized. It reinforces that notion. Today, you can see people are confused. They're thinking, anybody can go to heaven. doesn't matter what you are. You can just go to heaven. Why? Because they've separated, they divorced their belief in heaven and in God from the liturgy. But if they understand how these are connected, that confusion just goes away. And then realizing the importance of the faith and realizing the importance of being a Catholic, they become true evangelizers. Because until then, why evangelize anybody if anybody can go to heaven? What's the point? See how it becomes really important? Yes. The, the problem in all of this, like for instance, touching the tabernacle, going up the sanctuary, touching the or when the blessed sacrament is exposed, or the tabernacle is exposed, just going in and touching it. It's, um, it's, on the one hand, I completely understand where this comes from. It's a desire to be united to Jesus and have a, feet, a touch, right? And an attachment. That's great. In and of itself, there's nothing wrong with that. 
The problem is that it's not disciplined. We're acting like babies. Because we allow our feelings to precede what God wants from us. The fundamental problem isn't with the fact that we're touching the tabernacle, although we ought not to, because it's only consecrated hands that should touch the tabernacle. That's another thing we throw out of the window these days. But it's fundamentally the idea that we think it's more important to feed our feelings and emotions of how we want to worship than do what God wants us to do. And we all, I mean, we're all in the same boat. Okay? I'm not singling anybody here in particular. Is that, that we don't have that discipline and restraint to say, wait a minute, what is it God wants from me? Take off your shoes. This is holy place. He told Moses. That was Moses. I'm not Moses. So what is he telling me? I mean, how, how, why is it that I think I can act and dare to act in ways that Moses would never act? Am I better than Moses? Is that what I'm saying? Do, do you understand? So, so yeah, there is... If, if we are able to cultivate... And truly ask God to enlighten our minds on the importance of the liturgy in the church. Our worship becomes more pleasing to Him because He wants us to worship in a specific way. Not the way we want to worship. He has a way He wants us to worship with. And in. And that's what we should be doing. Yes. Good question. No. Instant death is not... Obviously, you don't have the same time. To, to face death as when you die from an illness, right? Um, having said that, nobody knows really what happens during that moment where you're in, you know, in, in transit from one to the other. However, the one thing I would say is that we all ought to pray to God. God will not give us this unless we pray for it. Pray for two things that He will not give us unless we pray for them. The first one is to persevere. Perseverance is not given to us unless we ask for it. And thankfully, it's not a complicated prayer. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of death. We're asking for perseverance right there. So that fulfills it. You're saying the rosary, you're doing what you want to do. The second, though, is to avoid um, sudden death. To pray that we may not die with a sudden death. Because what is... Sudden death depriving you of the sacraments, right? The viaticum, the last sacrament that will allow you to cross that, prepare to face the trials and the, the difficulties of that journey. So, oh, you might see your father, but you're not seeing your father and your mother. Let me be very clear. They cannot appear to you because God does not allow that to happen, Right? They're not them. They're demons. They're not Christian and they're certainly not Catholic. Because that's against the teaching of the church. God does not allow dead people to come to you. In when um, the rich man dies, he's talking to Abraham. And he tells him, let someone come over. And he says, there's a chasm between the two of us. So those who are on our side might not be able to cross over. God established a limit where He does not allow dead people to come. It's a deception. It's a, so you're not praying. You're not asking God's forgiveness. You're not asking uh, Jesus to save you. Interestingly, in that book, the name of Jesus is never mentioned. There's no need, right? Your loved ones are there to take you to the happy place. Well, we know what that is. 
right? So, no, do not be deceived. None of that has anything to do with the faith. At the moment of death, you do not see your loved ones. You're seeing demons. You will not see angels either, usually, unless you've been praying to God. So there are a number... I mean, why do you think there are a number of devotions that God gave us where He says, I will come to you. My mother will come, right? I will shield you. Why is He saying all of those things? He knows what's going to happen. Remember He said... My sheep recognize my voice. I am the true shepherd. My sheep recognize my voice. He didn't say, my sheep recognize me. Because his intent isn't for us to see, but to hear. At the moment of your death, most especially. So you can recognize his voice. Ah, if you're devoted to your guardian angel, if you've been asking your guardian angel to be there for you, your guardian angel will be there for you. But if you ignored your guardian angel all your life, how on earth are you going to be able to recognize him? How will you recognize his voice? You can't. You're making it impossible for him to, do e- to help you, even if, you, if he wanted to, which he wants, but he can't. How do you recognize his voice? You understand? Yes. You will be tempted. Let's correct that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, good luck with that. Your will is gone. You're dying. I mean, the agony of death. Your faculties are failing. Your senses are failing. You may be in pain. And you're going progressively into darkness. You can't hear. You can't see. You can't touch. There's nobody anymore around you. You are alone. So, good luck with even being able to pray. If you haven't prepared yourself and asked on good friends to be there for you, you've been foolish, thinking that, oh, no problem, I'll be Superman. I'll take care of it. Whatever God says, I'll do. You see what I'm saying? But if, if you've prepared for all of this, and Our Lady or your guardian angel, most likely for most of us is our guardian angel, knows your intention throughout your life, He'll set up a defensive perimeter around you because you know His voice. You've prepared yourself. You have friends who are going to carry you. Yeah? Do you see the difference? But if you've never done any of this, yes, if you've never done any of this throughout your entire life, never prayed, never were, you were never aware of, of God's presence or your angel's presence, you never asked Our Lady for nothing, do you think at the end God is going to impose Himself? Even if he did, you won't recognize the voice. Do you see my point? Do you, you see the point I was making earlier? Yes? Yes. And that's very powerful. But it's really a Russian roulette. What all I'm trying to say is that God in his mercy, because of someone else praying, could save someone. That's great. What I'm trying to say here is that what are we supposed to do? I'm talking about personal responsibility. We call ourselves Catholic. We call ourselves God, we, we, God-fearing God. What are we supposed to do, therefore? My focus here isn't about what God could do, right? He could, I mean, in some cases, he sent Padre Pio. There's a case of this man, I think, I read the story where this man was a Freemason, and right before he died, he wanted to see a priest. He was a Freemason all the way through. And all the people around him were all Freemasons, set up a perimeter so no priest could come and see him. Well, God sent Padre Pio. God could do that. Great. But if we're talking about people who are supposed to be in the church, going to Mass, saying, I love you, God, I love you, I love you, I love you, and not doing any of this, what kind of love is that? 
You see, my focus isn't about what God can do out there. My focus is, if we are in the Catholic Church, we call ourselves Catholics, what are we supposed to do? That's what my focus is. Absolutely. God always can do exceptions. But it would be foolish for us to count on them. Well, the question is, God can take us away because we're disobedient. But look at St. Augustine. I can understand what you're trying to say, but I would not choose St. Augustine as an example. Because his father was not a believer. His mother was a saint. Saint Monica. So, um, in case where the mother is a saint, everything is possible. However, what, again, uh, look, my point isn't trying to... I'm not God. I don't know what God could do. Right? He can do anything He wants. But, if the question is, what ought we to do, which is what I'm really concerned with, what I'm concerned with isn't what God could do out there because of somebody's intercession. There's nothing I can say about. We can't, there's nothing we can learn about. I mean, what are we going to do? Say, well, somebody's going to die and God is going to intervene in an extraordinary way? God can always do that. But the problem is the false hope. I don't want to count on it. You see what I'm saying? It's a hope that has no practical foundation for us. It, it doesn't help us. Ah, for us not to give our anybody. When you come to Mass, when you say the rosary, when you offer whatever you're doing out of love for Jesus, you're saving more people than you can ever imagine. Nobody's talking about giving up. We're actually talking about the exact opposite. Because when you do these things, the impact on the world is something you cannot even begin to measure. This is how the world is converted. By the silent prayer, the sufferings, the offerings, the little gifts of love we give Jesus, the world is saved. Mother Teresa understood that very, very well because so many sick people wanted to help her. And what she ended up doing is pairing a sick person with a sister. And telling the sick person, you're going to be the fuel for her work. She's going to be, be able to do all of these things because of your sufferings. She understood that the suffering was far greater than all the work she's doing. So who's talking about giving up hope on anybody? What we're talking about is the exact opposite. We're talking about how you impact the world, how you save the world, how you actually can reach... Thousands of people, maybe even more, without leaving your home. If you worship in truth and in spirit, if you worship the way God wants you to worship, you really think it's about giving up hope? It's the, quite the opposite. Do you understand what I'm saying to tell you? I'm trying to point out, this is how you can save these people. And this is what's being missed. If all we focus on is, well, God is merciful, and He's going to do those things, which is true, we forget that He does it because some holy soul has decided to do what He's asked. That's how the connection happens. You understand? Okay. Yes. Okay, very good. Okay, that's better. Um, everything God said we will do. They saw the mountain... God parted the sea before them. God saved them from the Egyptians. God brought them over there. God appeared to them. God did miracles. He fed them in the desert. Everything God said we will do three weeks later, the golden calf. Any different? They had Moses. They had Moses. 
So this is called the mystery of iniquity. At its deepest root, sin is a mystery. We can't completely understand it. It is rooted in the free will that God gave us. Riddle this one for me. Lucifer was the, one of the highest angels, one of the smartest angels. The difference between the angelic order and us is that angels, when they're created, they're given all the truths they need to make a decision. He had all the truths. He knew he was damning himself. Right? So there is a mystery there we can't fully comprehend. Now, the last thing I'll say about Luther, he was not the first. Way before him, way before him, a, um, a certain man called Pelagius, went to Rome in the 3rd and 4th century and was stupefied by the immorality of the clergy. And he therefore proceeded to say that, you know what, there is no such thing as original sin. There is no grace. Man is saved by his own will. And he then sets forth Pelagianism as one of the major heresies that is still living with us today. It happened over and over. St. Francis went to Rome and was faced with the same thing. The same exact thing. What was his answer? He wanted to talk to the Holy Father and he couldn't even get to him. What was his answer? Let's go back and pray. He sat all night praying and then the Lord, in a dream, came to the Pope and showed him the man who will save the church. One rebelled, protested, the other one prayed. These are the choices before us. Yeah? Yes? Mm-mm. No. It, it would be nice if it was that easy, but it isn't. Why you're still alive, right? You're still alive. Your faculties are breaking. Your will is not. At the end of the day, it's a question of the will, isn't it? It's the will that decides. The faculties are breaking. The will isn't. The devil doesn't need your eyes or ears to communicate with you, does he? No. Your will is dependent on your faculties to make a decision as far as the world is concerned. But if your faculties are failing, it means you can't be affected anymore by TV or radio or somebody talking to you. Yes? Your imagination is still there. The devil can still use it. If he portrays to you right there and then a picture of your mother saying to you, come to me. I'm going to save you. I'll take you home. He can still do that. You understand? Remember, the faculty of thinking is not in the brain. The brain is a muscle. The faculty of thinking is not your soul. It's in the soul. Right? So, as this process of dying, the agony of death is taking place, none of us, let me put it to you this way, none of us can be assured that we are protected from any attack. Because we don't fully understand or appreciate how the devil works. And as I mentioned to you, all these people having this notion that, all, that their loved ones are going to come and get them. Guess what they do? Remember, they get those things. They haven't died yet. They're coming in and out. right? Guess what they do then? There's no need to pray. Everything's going to be okay. We're fine. You understand? And then, then they made a decision conscientiously. I don't need to pray. My mother, my father, my wife, my child is there to get me. I'm not going to ask Jesus to save me. I'm not going to say the rosary. None of that. I'm done. You understand? Yes. And you know what? What you just said is really deep, but it is tied to the liturgy. If the choice is not made in our lives, day in, day out, right? Where we, in, habitually we start to think about Jesus, about Our Lady, about the angel, about, we say the rosary, 
then when we're dying, it's really hard. We're going back to relying on somebody else who might be praying for us. And that's a really dangerous situation to be in. Yeah? Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay, very good. The question is, there are others who have, they can have their own altar. They have a relationship with Jesus. They have um, their way to worshiping. And they think they're doing the right thing. So how can we tell who are the, the sheep from the goats? How do we know we are the ones and they're not? Because they're saying the same thing. And oh, by the way, the Jews are saying the same thing. And the Muslims and the Buddhists and everybody else. Well, how do we know we are the right ones? Jesus addressed that issue when he met the uh, woman at the well. She told him, we worship on Mount Gerizim, you worship in, 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 uh, in Jerusalem. Right? And he told her straight out, you worship what you do not know. He didn't say to her, you worship a false god. He said, you worship what you do not know. He didn't say the name of God, because this is a Jewish thing, not to say Yahweh. He said, you worship what you do not know. They're worshiping the right God, but they don't know Him. We worship what we know. And that's why He said, Amen, Amen, I say to you, the time will come and is now where men will worship in truth and in spirit. So you can't separate worship from the truth. So you need the truth. That's what Jesus said. I am the truth. So you need to know who he is. How do we know who he is? Well, he told us about his church. He said the church will have four marks with St. Paul. And we confide, we confess that in the creed. The church is holy, apostolic, Catholic, and one. One. Unity. So apostolic means that you can see that you're going back to the apostles. There is a historical line of succession. So you look in the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, and you see every bishop that has been ordained a bishop goes back to an apostle. You can tell the entire lineage. This is why the church said of the Anglican Church, they don't have the right sacraments because we, the, the lineage was broken. Some people were, um, were um, consecrated bishops by people who were not bishops or we were not sure there were bishops. So the order was completely broken. The Protestant churches don't have that. They're not apostolic. You understand? That's one mark. The second is unity. What do you mean by unity? We mean that the liturgy is the same. The liturgy is confessing the same truth. You look at the entire spectrum of all the Catholic Church, the liturgy is one. It has different forms, it has different styles, but it's confessing the same truth. One, holy. There has not been one year since the resurrection of our Lord. Not one year that the Catholic Church did not have a sign, a miraculous healing in the church. Not one year. Holy, apostolic, Catholic means universal, and one. That's how. It goes back to what is the church. Jesus said to Peter, and on you I will build my church. One. So therefore, recognize his church, 
you recognize this flock. Make sense? Okay. Yes. Very good question. And the answer is always the same. It's grace. It's grace. I and you and everybody here would not be able to comprehend it any better than they would without the grace of God. That's as simple as that. Jesus said, no one comes to me unless called by my Father. And that's the whole issue of election and predestination and free will that gets back into the picture that we cannot completely ignore. It is the grace of God working in us that make us see. See? They just don't understand it. They just, they, I, I read, actually, most of, my, most of my sources are Protestant. I couldn't find decent Catholic sources for anything I'm explaining to you. There are, most of my sources, I'm sorry, are Jewish first, and then Protestant. I have very few Catholic sources that I can go to. It's very frustrating. Right? And I read what they say, and then just, they, they deflect it. They just ignore it. Okay, St. Paul said there is a veil. Remember the veil? That's what he meant. The veil is still in front of them. It hasn't fallen. Until this happens, they can't see it. Well, changing the verse is not necessarily a reason. They they don't know it because they're trying to manipulate anything. It's just that they are giving an answer that is possible to the meaning of the verse that suits their understanding. We do that as well. So, in the interpretive translation like the New American Bible and others, you will have a way of interpreting something. Hail, full of grace. Right? That is not exactly what the angel said. The Greek words that we have in scripture is not hail, full of grace. That's St. Jerome's understanding. And it's appropriate, but you have to understand it. That's why um, greetings... Uh, uh, what is it again? <laughs> greetings, uh, favored one... That's the literal meaning that you could ascribe to the words. So I wouldn't necessarily say they're doing it always by uh, ill intent. Now, the Jehovah Witnesses is a different story. They completely, um, they don't interpret. They completely change the scripture, okay? But the Protestants, I would not necessarily say they're doing that. They're just ascribing a meaning that meets where they are, right? And we do the same. That's why I don't use any interpretive uh, Bible in my study. I only use the the one that seems to be the closest to the actual text. For this, this is the reason why. Okay, yes. Very good. So, uh, that's a very good question, because as soon as you talk about the devil, people indeed go straight to the extremes. Possession and all that. We don't have to do any of this. Um, if you're interested by that, by the way, if you're interested with this particular subject, the angelic order and its relationship to us, I have four CDs on the, on the web, or you can get them, you can ask Lilian, that cover the entire spectrum of this whole conversation. But in very uh, uh, in a succinct way, the devil the devil cannot send you to hell. But let's be very clear. In in Matthew, Jesus says, "Do not fear the one who can kill the body. Feel the one that can kill the spirit." He didn't mean feel the devil. The devil doesn't send you to hell. He cannot kill your spirit. He mean he means fear me. I'm the one who sends you to hell. The Lord of hell is not Satan. Satan is not the Lord of hell. The Lord of hell is Jesus Christ. For every knee shall bend above on, in heaven, on earth, and beneath the earth to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who condemns people to hell. Let's be very clear. So therefore, what can the devil do? What he did in the garden. What did he do? He tempts. How does he do that most of the time? How does he do it with us? Which sense? Not thought. 
Not taste. Imagination. The imagination is the most angelic faculty in us. And the ancients knew that, therefore they actually put a lot of emphasis on the formation of the imagination. They formed the imagination of the youth. We completely dropped the ball. Right? Today, for instance, the, the, some of the cartoons uh, I've seen yesterday, I, I, I took my, my daughter to a very, it's, it's, a, it's a surprisingly good movie from Disney called Tangled. Very well done. But before that, there was on the TV, uh, TV network some cartoons. The thing that struck me was how ugly the figures are. Never mind whether the story is good or not. The fact that they're ugly are conditioning our kids not to be able to hear the voice of their garden angel. Because the garden angel will only use whatever images we have in our imagination to talk to us, which are good and beautiful. That's why the formation of the imagination, teaching our children about beauty and goodness, is so important as a natural foundation for the supernatural relationship they can have with their angel. So, you have a bunch of buddies who go see a horror movie. What do you think they're doing? The devil is applauding that. Whether they're afraid or not doesn't matter on the spot. That's not the point. The point is, they're stuffing their imagination with images he will be able to use. They're making it easier for him to communicate with them, to influence them, to impress them. You have a bunch of boys sitting there playing these games. Shoot them. All they see is blood and gore and destruction. What are they doing? You have a bunch of boys who listen to rock and roll. What are they doing? All of these things are stuffing their imagination with everything required for them to hear the evil one. So that's what he does most of the time. And you know what? These days, he's almost unemployed. Because we're doing such a good job, we're, we're almost surpassing him in our ability to trip ourselves. No. They, no, no, he cannot read. He cannot read. Let's be very clear. The devil cannot read your mind. Because that would mean he can impinge upon your free will. Your guardian angel cannot read your mind. The blessed mother cannot read your mind. A saint cannot, nobody can read your mind other than God, specifically the Holy Spirit. No one knows the depth of man's heart other than the Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit. So how does the saint hear you? How does your guardian angel hear you? We are part matter and part Spirit, so therefore we can communicate with spirits, right? And the way we communicate with them is through the faculty of the imagination. So all he has to do is suggest things. And I've talked to you about this multiple times. You're sitting there and a thought comes to your head. Boom. And usually it's an image. It just pops in your head, something. And we have so much dropped the ball that we never ask ourselves this question. Is that from me? Is that from the devil? Is that from our guardian angel? Is it from God? We don't ask the question of the source of that thing. We just assume it's from me. So that's how he does it. Yes, yes, yes. Screw Tape Letters is a very informative and amusing, in one sense, book where the devil is teaching a junior demon on how to tempt man. Very good book to read by C.S. Lewis. Or listen, actually, it comes in a tape. The Screw Tape, <coughs> the screw tape Letters where he's writing to an a, how to tempt a man, what he's supposed to do. Yes, very good. All right, back to you. you I think you had more, one more question. Contemplate. Contemplation is more advanced than meditation, but we can't contemplate on our own. You and I cannot contemplate. We can meditate. 
and God pulls us into contemplation. It's very hard to know the difference until you, you experience the difference. One, you are pulling water out of, the, of, out of a pit by yourself. You're, you're, you're making all the effort of pulling the water out. That's, that's, that would be meditation. Contemplation, water falls gently and waters your, the field. The field is your soul. In one case, you're making all the intellectual effort to think through, to understand, ask God for inspiration. Your m- mind is working to understand. In the other, your mind is not working, which is very unsettling for us. And God feeds you and you don't know how. That's why prayer becomes ineffable, undescribable. Okay? But if you meditate, you're telling God, you become like a lightning rod for lightning. Okay? Yes, of course, there's a meaning for opening the hands. It depends. Opening the hands. Um, the reason why they open their hands, hands, remember Jesus often used the hand to touch his power in the hands. And oftentimes you see when they say to our Father, most people do it the priestly way, which is a power of intercession. Their hands are opened like this. Right? This is the position that a priest will use and a sorcerer will use. Okay? In the, in the Eastern Rites, when you're supposed to open your hands, at least in the Maronite liturgy, when you open your hands for saying the Our Father, you open your hands not the way the priest opens his hands. You're not interceding. What are you doing? You're begging. No, no, no. You're just a beggar. That's why you open your hands. Because you're a beggar. So do you see beggars standing like this and going, please help me? Opening? Do you see a beggar doing that? Okay, like this, down there. That's the problem. They're after power, and they know. I mean, it's almost sorcery when they do it, because they think they can get the same power as the priest. It's just, it, it mongles my... Anyhow, I'm not going to go there. So, in, in, when you're supposed to open your hands, you, down as a beggar. Yes, that's it. Yes. Yeah. If the liturgy asks you to do it. Not in the Latin rite. Latin rite, you're not supposed to do it at all. In the Latin rite, clasp your hand like this. Okay? You're not holding hands. You're not singing Kumbaya. You're not doing any of this. You're just clasping your hand like this. Okay? Clasp your hands. They'll leave you alone. Pardon? Oh, it's embarrassing. Ah. Ah, it's embarrassing. Yes, it's embarrassing. Absolutely. Guess what? Guess what? You're going to embarrass somebody. You have no choice. You're embarrassing them or you're embarrassing Jesus. Make your choice. But that's what I'm saying. You're not seeing that Jesus is going to be embarrassed if you hold their hands. Yeah. Whoever is ashamed before, what is it? Whoever is ashamed. No, about me. Um. I will be ashamed of him before my father. Okay? Yeah. No, I, you just hold your hands, close your eyes, and I'll leave you alone. But that's what I'm saying. I understand in this day and age where there's so many fractures and breakdown and divorces and families completely all over the place, people want to feel united, which is great. I completely understand the feeling. I completely vie for it. I also want to be united. You know what? God, at this point in the liturgy, is not telling us, hold hands and be united. So therefore, we're not supposed to do it. Because of that. Because we're defining liturgy. We're telling God, 
we are going to worship according to how we feel, not according to what you tell us to do. It's rebellion. No, no, no. He only told them how to pray on the mountain. No, no. He didn't say any of this. He asked them how to pray, and he said, when you pray, say, our Father. And he told them what to say. The liturgy was defined later by the apostles. The church defined the liturgy. Okay? Yes. Read the rubric and follow it. You can actually get a copy of the rubric. Yeah. Which tells you, uh, stand, kneel, uh, do this, do that. Follow this and understand it. And understand why. And you can please God more. Yeah. Within the, the right, which is the Latin right in your case. Find out what, how you're supposed to worship God. Because this is what he's expecting of you. If you do that... You're pleasing God more than anything else you could do. Yeah? Not in, a, not in a Maronite church, no. You're not supposed to kneel. You're supposed to bow. So just bow. You're supposed to kneel, you kneel. Whatever the... <laughs> we go back to the basics. The church says, do this way, do it this way. Whether you feel like it or not. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because if you go visit somebody at their home, you do the way they do. Right? So you follow the Mass, you're attending... So if, let's say here in the Maronite church, we have a visiting priest who's celebrating the Latin Rite Mass. You follow the Latin Rite rubric. You kneel when you're supposed to kneel. You stand when you're supposed to kneel. And at the, Holy, at the Our Father, you clasp your hands. My kids, when they were little, were really confused. Because in the Maronite church, you're supposed to open your hands at the Our Father. In the, and in, in the Latin Rite church, we go to, you're not supposed to open your hands, but everybody else does it. So they were protesting. Why are we doing it this way and not that way? I'm just, look, this is how it works. This is what you're supposed to do, and that's that. That's what we do. Yeah? All right. Yes, last question. Oh, very, very simple and very nice question to close with. If we are one united church, why is there differences? Remember, unity does not mean uniformity. God loves flowers, and he created a whole bunch of them. They're all flowers. Right? So in heaven... Right? You have pizza on one side, you have hummus on the other. God loves diversity. But they're professing the same truth. That's the key. Yeah? Yes, different ways of showing God's glory. And that's why it's so important to conform to the right, because you discover God's glory, an aspect of it that no other right will reveal to you. And when God brings you into a right... He intends for you to be fed in that right. Make sense? All right. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.